The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask that you turn this morning in the Bible to Revelation 21. We're looking again at verses 1 through 8. In 2010, Tyndale House published a book that took our nation by storm. It was called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, A True Story. It related the story of little Alex Malarkey's experiences when he was six years old after a terrible traffic accident in 2004. According to his own account, Alex and his father, Kevin, were involved in a uh, terrible car crash on a rural highway in Pennsylvania. Alex said that he saw his father fly out of the window of the car only to be caught by an angel and carried to safety. He then related his own experience after he had been uh, life flighted by a helicopter to a hospital and in the book he states he was carried by an angel through the gates of heaven that he described as tall to be met by Jesus who appeared out of a hole in heaven and after he regained consciousness, he told his family this account, and his father helped him to write down his uh, near-death experience. And Tyndale House published it, promoting it as, quote, a supernatural encounter that will give you new insights into heaven, angels, and hearing the voice of God, end quote. The book sold over a million copies, which shows the intense interest that people have about heaven... Unfortunately, despite the fact that it says right on the cover, a true story, it was not true at all. In the year 2012, Alex described it as one of the most deceptive books ever published. Talking about his own book. Alex wrote in a, a confession of sorts, I did not die, I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. Uh, when I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies, and they continue to profit from lies. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. Actually, The Boy Who Went to Heaven is one of a number of books that have been written in what's been known, become known as the heavenly tourism genre. Heavenly tourism. Uh, people who claim to have had visions of heaven and can give us information about what we will experience after we die. The 2004 book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, spent over five years on the New York Times bestseller list. Sold over six million copies. Even more impressive is Todd Burpo's account of his three-year-old son Colton's experience. That book was called Heaven is for Real, A Little Boy's Astounding Story of His Trip to Heaven and Back. That book sold over 10 million copies, and it was made into a movie that has grossed over $101 million at the box office. Uh, that story was made particularly engrossing because little Colton somehow acquired information about an unborn sister that was miscarried by his mother in 1998, and a great-grandfather who had died 30 years uh, before Colton was born. So this seemingly supernatural uh, information gave um, little Colton's account 
uh, spiritual authority to many, many people and helped uh, explain the runaway sales of the book and also the interest in the movie. Pastor John MacArthur in California was deeply concerned about all of these kinds of stories. He said this, it may be quite fascinating to read these intricately detailed accounts of people who claim to have come back from heaven, but that hobby is as dangerous as it is seductive. Readers not only get a twisted, unbiblical picture of heaven from these tall tales, they also imbibe a subjective, superstitious, shallow brand of super spirituality. There's no reason to believe anyone who claims to have gone to heaven in return. Studying mystical accounts of supposed journeys into the afterlife yields nothing but confusion, contradiction, false hope, bad doctrine, and a host of similar evils. I take it John MacArthur doesn't like the book or any of those kinds of books. Now, the amazing popularity of these kinds of books shows the intense interest we all have in where we're going, in heaven. The controversy that's followed them, however, shows the danger inherent in some of these accounts. And frankly, as Alex said, getting any information about heaven from any place other than the Bible. And that is the power of the last two books of the Bible that we are studying. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John records his spiritual visions that God gave him through the power of the Holy Spirit in which he ascended in the Spirit into the heavenly realms and saw visions of heaven and predictions of the future. The book of Revelation begins with these words in Revelation 1, 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw. And then a few chapters later in Revelation 4, John writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone seated on it. Now both of these verses say that John was given a revelation from God of the future and of the heavenly realms. As we come to Revelation 21 and 22, we come to the final visions that God gave to John on the island of Patmos, indeed the final visions of the Bible, visions of the heavenly world to which Christians are going. And they are visions that God commanded John to write down for us to read. Look again at verse 5. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. So the words committed to the Apostle John are trustworthy. In other words, you can build your, your life on these words. You can build the hopes of your soul on these words. They're trustworthy and they're true. They're not lies. They're not deceptions. They're actually true. And John was commanded through the Holy Spirit to write them down for us, for the generations that would come, 20 centuries of Christians that would read these accounts. In being given this responsibility, God dealt differently with John than he did with the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul said this, speaking of himself, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, 
things that man is not permitted to tell. You hear the two things that Paul says about what he saw when he was caught up to the third heaven. They're inexpressible. In other words, you can't put them accurately into words. And then man is not permitted to tell what I saw, what I heard. So he wasn't even allowed to try to put them into words. God had planned to entrust that responsibility to John perhaps many decades later. Whatever you may think about the heavenly tourism books, you may agree with John MacArthur or disagree. You may enjoy reading them. But this book of Revelation, and specifically the last two chapters, are the only God-approved, spirit-inspired description of the magnificent future world to which we Christians are going. And they are worthy of our careful study because they are trustworthy and they are true. Now, I was right in the middle of this sermon last week. You may have noticed it was the same text that was read. It's going to be read again next week. I'm going to focus next week specifically on verse 4. Because verse 4 is so magnificent that I'm going to just mention it in passing. And I want to just draw out for you the full implications of the world to which we are going. Where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Next week I want to pull that out. I'll talk about it some this week. But next week I just want to swim in that verse and try to understand what that's going to mean for us. But let's have a little bit of review. God has commanded us, as I said last week, to meditate on heaven. We are commanded to fill our minds and our hearts with things above and things to come. Not on earthly things. For we died, we Christians died, and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears in the future. When he appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. So we are to fill our minds and our hearts with heavenly meditations. We also noted last week, the greater our suffering, the sweeter will be our meditations in heaven. Jesus said in in Matthew 5, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we know that our brothers and sisters in, in, in restricted countries are suffering for the gospel and they are Some of them incarcerated for their faith. They're in prison. We're supposed to remember them according to the book of Hebrews as if we were in prison with them. And one of the number one things you should do to pray for the persecuted church is pray that God would give them robust meditations on their heavenly life, on their heavenly rewards. As Jesus said, rejoice and be glad when you're going through suffering for my name. We noted that our present affluent, comfortable life makes meditation on heaven not as sweet and not as urgent we should just note that. I also noted the benefits of meditating on heaven. A strong yearning for heaven does many things for us. First of all, it proves where, are you, where your treasure is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A strong yearning for heaven develops Christian character, perseverance, boldness, courage, and otherworldly aspect to your life, meditation on heaven. A strong yearning for heaven glorifies God. From Psalm 73, when you can say to God, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you, that greatly glorifies God. A strong yearning for heaven makes all of God, uh, all of life God-centered. Because heaven is God-centered, and the more you meditate on that place, the more God-centered you will become. God will be your treasure and your pleasure. A strong yearning for heaven helps us to realize how insignificant our life circumstances really are, good or bad. It tends to shrink into insignificance some of the accolades and rewards and treasures of this life. 
and also the sufferings that we go through. And so we are able to meditate on the, on the sufferings as Paul would say, not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, as light and momentary compared to eternity. A strong yearning for heaven results in holiness, as both Paul and John link a meditation on heaven to putting sin to death and purif purifying ourselves just as he is pure. So a yearning for holiness comes from a meditation on heaven. A strong yearning for holiness drives missions and evangelism. It drives us to live otherworldly lives, not caring what we get in this life. It enables people to leave behind the comforts of America and this lifestyle and go to places that they know are not going to be as comfortable. Actually, where they might be actively persecuted because they're living for heaven. Also, our hope in heaven is very attractive to people who are without hope and without God in the world. It just drives the external journey, a meditation on heaven. And it enables us to vigorously serve God right to the end because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. So we looked at the benefits of that. And then we got into the details of the text last week. Beginning at verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And so we talked about the fact that, that the Bible somewhat comes full circle. It begins in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it ends with this incredibly hopeful statement that completes God's intention in making a physical universe as a manifestation of his love. A manifestation of his glory. He wanted that. He wanted a physical universe. He didn't need it. But he wanted that. And so he created the first heaven and the first earth. And then in the end, he's going to remove it. The first heaven and the first earth will pass away. And he's going to bring in a new heaven and a new earth. And the use of the same word shows that I think there's going to be a continuity. And so as I've, I've advocated the idea of a resurrected earth in which there is a link to this present world. But it will be far greater and more glorious. And in that physical, spiritual world to which we are going, we will have the delight of exploring and getting to know like Lewis and Clark or the explorers that got on wooden ships and sailed to the new world uh, to see what that new world is going to be like. And we're going to see at that point, as it says in Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're going to be studying like scientists and explorers, what God has made in the new heaven and new earth, and we're going to celebrate it and delight in it. And the first heaven and first earth will have passed away, but we'll remember it, and I'm going to talk about that next week. If I could kind of summarize next week's main theme, it's memory, but no mourning. And I just want to talk about that next week. We're going to remember this present world and our times in this world, but there'll be no pain, no mourning, no sorrow about it. The first heaven and the first earth will, will have passed away. It'll be gone and it'll be similar to our resurrection bodies. I think of a resurrected world like our resurrected bodies. And so remember we looked at 1 Corinthians 15 and you just need to understand you will have a resurrection body and live in a physical resurrected world in that resurrected body. So they really go together. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we have to have resurrection bodies to be in that perfect world. And so the resurrection body is described. The body that is sown, the mortal body, is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown, he said, in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Imperishable. 
glorious, powerful, spiritual. That's your resurrection body. And I think the resurrected world will be like that. And we're going to be walking in our resurrection bodies on this resurrected earth. You'll feel resurrected soil with your resurrected feet, whatever that means. And you're going to enjoy doing that. Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, just loves to speculate or use his imagination on what that new world is going to be like as long as the imagination is based on Scripture. And he talks about how it's going to be like home, only different, only better. It's going to be like what we've known in this world. And he cites verse 10. Look ahead at verse 10. Revelation 21, 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. So you can imagine John and his vision is on this lofty, grand and glorious mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Also, later in Revelation 22, it speaks of a river flowing through the center of the city, flowing clear as crystal. And so you've got this great mountain, and you've got this, this wonderful, refreshing river. And so, at that point, Randy Alcorn goes on a flight of fancy, imaginations of what it's going to be like. But it's such an incredible thing. We start to imagine what God could do with mountains and rivers in the new earth. And so, Alcorn uses the logic of progression. Our resurrection bodies will be like our physical bodies, only better. It will be uh, expanded capabilities. Alcorn writes this about the new earth. He says, everything God tells us suggests we will look back at the present earth and conclude, creatively speaking, I love this, God was just warming up and getting started with this present earth. Look at God's track record in creating natural wonders in this universe. For example, on Mars, the volcano Olympus Mons rises, listen to this, 79,000 feet from the surface of Mars. 79,000. Mount Everest is 29,000 feet high. That's almost three times taller than Mount Everest. The base of Olympus Mons on Mars is 370 miles across and would cover the entire state of Nebraska. That's a big mountain. The Valles Marineris is a vast canyon on the surface of Mars. Listen to this. It stretches one-sixth the way around Mars, 2,800 miles long, one canyon. That's about the, the distance from the Atlantic to the Pacific across the United States. And it's 370 miles wide and four and a half miles deep. Hundreds of our Grand Canyons would fit inside that one canyon. And that's Mars. So he's not advocating, Alcorn's not advocating traveling to Mars. He's not saying that. He's just saying, look at what God has done in this present decaying universe. He says the new earth may have far more spectacular features than that. The new earth's waterfalls may dwarf, dwarf the Niagara Falls we now know. We may find rock formations more spectacular than Yosemite's or than the Alps or the Karakoram Mountains or the Himalayan Mountains. Forests deeper and richer than the Pacific Northwest or the Amazonian rainforest. We also know there won't be any decay or bondage, suffering, decay that the present nature has. So we could imagine that there wouldn't be natural disasters that torment the planet now, such as earthquakes, hurricanes, volcanic eruptions, mudslides, floods, droughts, or any such thing that would destroy the beauty and the harmony, the peacefulness of the future world. The text says no longer will there be any sea. There's no longer any sea. We discussed that last time, briefly. And as I said, whether you're fine with that or not, what will be will be. 
But whatever God makes will be spectacular and majestic and beautiful, breathtaking. Now in verse 2 we have the new Jerusalem descending from God. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is the capital city of God's eternal empire. There will be both glorious world and a radiant city. So we can ma- imagine both nature and city, both, both rural and urban in the new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem. And that's the very thing that's promised to the believers in the Old Testament, Hebrews eleven sixteen. It says, all these were still living by faith when they died. And they died longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. A heavenly country and a glorious city. So you get both. The new heaven, new earth, and the new Jerusalem. So the country, as we've said, implies a world to explore. Vast, spacious, teeming with life. Scenic vistas, lakes, rivers, hills, forests, fields, mountains. Spectacular scenery, vast open spaces. The city, on the other hand, implies a concentration of population. It implies shared experiences. It implies relationship. It implies society and culture, fellowship, creativity, the arts. Think about architecture and, and music and art and all these things that are displays of, of, of us being created in the image of God. Now, the New Jerusalem, it says, will descend from heaven already constructed by the hand of God. But it seems that not only has God gotten the bride ready, but she has gotten herself ready. So we can well imagine our labors in this world help get the new Jerusalem glorious and beautiful. And so we can well imagine in the next world our labors will be welcome. And we will be working in the new heaven and the new earth. Now the word Jerusalem, again, implies continuity but difference. The word Jerusalem was, uh, was so evocative and powerful for the Jews. The old Jerusalem was the city of David. It was the center of Jewish life, the center of Jewish culture and religion and hopes. But it was also corrupted by idolatry. It was corrupted by wickedness. It had to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. This new Jerusalem is perfectly pure. The perfection of the Old Testament purpose, especially the place where God dwells in glory in the midst of his people. The new Jerusalem is therefore both a city, which is a place, and a people. So these images just kind of melt together. The church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, is the new Jerusalem. But we, having resurrection bodies, will have to dwell somewhere. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And so we need a location. And so here the image is of a wedding day, a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. She's radiantly beautiful. She's made ready for her wedding day. She's coming down out of heaven ready. She is gloriously adorned and dressed and ready for her her bridegroom. Radiantly beautiful. And she's been labored on by Christ for centuries of redemptive history. All of the evangelism and the discipleship, all of the pastoral ministry and the ministry of spiritual gifts by gifted men and women who teach the word of God and the gifts of administration and of prayer and faith, all of those spiritual gifts were together to make her radiant and beautiful to get her ready for her wedding day. Uh, Just as Paul says to husbands in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. To make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water 
through the word in order that he might present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. So that's how Christ has been getting the bride ready. She is, she's without any blemish. She's without any stain or wrinkle even. In every respect, her adornment is beautiful and magnificent. She's adorned. Cosmeo is the Greek word, a sense of the cosmetic, the beauty of her, of her visage and her dress, just glorious and ready. And the image of, of marriage is, is a powerful Old Testament image, how God had married Israel. How it says in Jeremiah 2, I remember how you, O Israel, followed me like a bride in the desert. You were holy to me. So many of the images in the, in the Old Testament are negative through the prophets, how God speaks like a husband whose wife is unfaithful. Like the prophet Hosea who was commanded to marry an adulterous wife and have children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery and departing from the Lord. And how we all have, like in the hymn, prone to wander our hearts, prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, our idolatrous, wandering, defective hearts. We'll be cured and healed from that at last and purified from our wandering ways. And so that marriage image is perfected uh, between Christ and the church. And the central joy of heaven in verse 3 is that God will dwell with his people. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with people and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the central joy of heaven. One of the big problems of those heavenly tourism books is it misses this fact. The central joy of heaven is God, being with the triune God. And you get the sense in the text that God has been yearning for this throughout all the eras of redemptive history. Now at last the dwelling of God is with people. At last, like God has been waiting and yearning and working for this moment for thousands and thousands of years. All of God's patience and pain and compassion and suffering, and all of his labor comes to sweet consummation. It is, it is difficult to even find the total number of times God says something like this in Israel or through the prophets. I will be your God and you will be my people. It says it again and again. Leviticus 26 11 and 12, I will put my dwelling among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. So here at last we have the fulfillment of the dwelling glory of God. The Greek here links also to the the Hebrew for the word uh, tabernacle, the mishkan. And so the Hebrew uh, comes over, we're aware of this expression, the shekinah glory. It just literally means the, the dwelling glory. The glory that God shows when he's settling down to dwell in the midst of his people. And he would use a glory cloud to show that he was there. He, when the tabernacle was set up, the glory cloud appeared and filled the tabernacle. And so this is the centerpiece. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon uh, on 1 Corinthians 13, he's talking about the future world. Heaven is a world of love. He talks about, despite the fact that God is omnipresent, he is revealed in Scripture, as especially in certain places, relationally. And so he's more in Israel than in any other nation on earth. And, and he's more in Jerusalem than any other city in Israel. And he's more in the temple than any other building in Jerusalem. 
And he's more in the Holy of Holies than any other part of the temple. And he's more above in the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant than anywhere else in the Holy of Holies. There's a concentration of the revelation of God. And that's what you get in heaven. Where we are going to be swimming in a sea of God. And so deeply, richly satisfied with that. Filled with God. This is the reward of heaven. This is what he said to Abraham. Fear not, Abraham. I am your very great reward. When Abram would not take all of that, that loot, loot from the battle with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and all that. He didn't want it. He said, let them have their share. He didn't want it. He didn't want the gold and silver from Sodom and Gomorrah. And God appeared to him in a vision. I think in effectively saying, effectively saying to Abraham, well done. Fear not, I am your very great reward. And that's what we're going to... And what's really amazing about all this... I can understand the more I learn about God, the more I understand how glorious that's going to be, why I would want to be with God. But why does he want to be with me? Why does he want to be with all of you? Why does he want to be with us? We are so sinful. We are so weak, so insignificant, so corrupted. But God doesn't see it that way. He yearns to have fellowship with us. Just like Jesus said to his squabbling apostles when they're arguing that night before he was crucified about which of them was the greatest and he says to them I have earnestly desired to eat this final meal with you before I suffer it's just incomprehensible to me but that's the way he is he wants to be with us so to some degree we are his heritage and he is ours now other joys of heaven are lesser than this but they're worth discussing begin at verse 4 but we'll continue this next week look at verse 4 he will wipe every tear from their eyes There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is the intimacy of, you can imagine, Christ's own hand wiping your tears away. The intimacy of that. The tenderness of that. We'll talk more about the tears that we have, we have wept, but there's so many different reasons for tears. All of the grief and suffering and pain that we've gone through. Those days will be over. For me personally, the, the hardest thing in my life is my own sin. That's the thing that causes the greatest regret in my life. And it causes me tears, tears of sorrow over my own sinfulness. Many, many times. And to have Jesus actually wipe those tears away and say, we're not going to weep or mourn over that anymore. It's just, it's hard to even imagine how sweet that's going to be. Sometimes I think it's helpful to link it together with, I think, an appropriate understanding of Judgment Day. I do not include verse 4 and its beautiful promises over Judgment Day like a canopy. I think Judgment Day is going to be hard. I think it's going to be a day of darkness and sorrow. It's going to be difficult to give Christ an account for everything done in the body, whether good or bad. It's going to be difficult for you to give an account for every careless word that you've spoken. And some people believe you won't. I don't know why they think this. They bring in Romans 8.1 that says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I just don't think that giving Jesus an account is the same as condemnation. Condemnation is the lake of fire, which we're going to talk about in a moment. That's what condemnation is. He's not going to say to you on the basis of any of your sins, if you're a Christian, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You will not be condemned, but you will give him an account. Because the scripture says it plainly. We must all be appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. 
2 Corinthians 5.10. I imagine that that's going to be difficult. So also 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that God is going to test the body of our works to see if they are worthy of reward. And so it says in 1 Corinthians 3, if any man builds on that foundation, the foundation of Christ, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. For the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each one's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. Meditate on that. If your works are burned up, you will suffer loss. That will be difficult. But I confine the emotional reaction to that difficulty, to judgment day, not beyond. And so when all of your faithless works and your sins and your sins of omission and commission and all of that is tested and the wood, hay, straw burns up and it's gone. And then the gold, silver, costly stones, those actions that you did for the glory of God and that you did out of a heart of love and that you did by faith, however imperfect all those, they will be purified by fire and you'll be rewarded for those works. I can imagine some tears on that day. I can imagine tears of regret. I didn't live like I should have, God. I wasted opportunities. There were people you brought into my life who didn't know Jesus and I never said anything to them. There were poor people around me and I lived selfishly. I didn't really do anything for them. Not like I should have. I did some things, but I didn't do enough. And I can well imagine regrets on that day. What's so amazing then is for Jesus with that holy and nail-scarred hand actually wipe our tears away and comfort us and then bring us into a world where those tears will be shed no more. Now that's incredible, but that's his grace. And it says there'll be no more death. Death is the final enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 1 Corinthians 15, 26. All the destruction and sorrow and fear and anxiety and intense loss and pain caused by death will end forever. We're going to live forever and ever. And beyond just that we will not die, what that means is our relationships are eternal. We're never going to say goodbye anymore to people. And we're not going to age you're not going to like reach your prime after about 10,000 years and then there's a long, slow decline. That would be a long decline, eternity. But you're not, that's not going to happen. The body that is raised is going to be raised in power and in glory. And there's no decline. There's no death. No, no funerals. And he said no mourning and no crying. So I look at mourning being the psychological, emotional, mental state and then the crying, the action that flows from it. We'll talk all about that more next week. Now, in verses 5 through 7, he gives a very powerful invitation to this eternal home. Look at verse 5. He says, He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. So God speaks from his throne. He speaks with the voice of, of kingly, powerful uh, uh, authority. Just the power and authority of the king. And, and he says, Behold, I love that, just behold, I am making all things new. Behold, like, look at this. And I am making all things new. There's a sense of, of energetic activity that God has. It's not a deistic world to which you're going where God sets it up and then he's removed from it. He is actively, energetically involved in making all things new. 
And it's a comprehensive new creation. Just like our souls, the moment we come to Christ, we are made new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. There is no other new creation thing in this present world. The only new creation thing there is in this present world are our redeemed souls. Everything else is old order. Old order of things. But he's going to make everything new. How beautiful is that? And then the command, I love this, write this down. Our Christian faith is a literary faith. It's a, it's a writing faith. We have a book. And this book sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. I'm not saying they don't have holy books. I know about the Quran. I know about the Bhagavad Gita and other uh, writings. But this book is unique. And God told Moses to write down the Ten Commandments. They were originally written with the finger of God. And then to write down all of the commands that God gave to Moses in the desert. And so after that, all of the prophets were commanded in a similar way to write down the word of God. And now this final testimony, these words have been written down. And they are trustworthy and true. Now, they are part of that poor reflection that we see indistinctly, dimly. How do you put heaven into words? How can you possibly describe in nouns and verbs and adjectives and paragraphs a vision like this? But he said, write down what I tell you. It's gonna, the words will be exactly what I want you to say to correspond to this vision. Now, the words are good enough to get us to heaven. But they are not as good as being in heaven. Amen? These words are good enough to get you to heaven, but they're not as good as being there. But we're going to see him face to face, and that's going to be so much better. But in the meantime, we have these words. And the words of the Lord are flawless, purified like silver, seven times refined in a furnace of clay. They're perfect words, Psalm 12, 6, but they're just words. And so in that, then, God gives his invitation. Based on these words, he's giving you an invitation right now. Please hear this. Look at verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. So he says in verse 6, it is done, or literally, it has become. There's a becoming aspect, and it's like it has now become. I have brought this magnificent new world into reality. It has become, he's saying. I've made it become real. And he points again to that linear history that spread out over redemptive history. Christ is the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. The first world, the, this present world that will pass away was brought in through Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. And without Him nothing was made that has been made. That's Jesus. The Word became flesh. That's Jesus. And through Christ the first world came into being. So also through Christ the, the eternal world will come into being through the work of the Father. I love what it says in Isaiah 9-7. Speaking of Jesus. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. How powerful is that? He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So his kingdom is just going to keep on increasing and getting more glorious 
more evidently radiant and beautiful. And we're going to see it. We're gonna, the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Christ's kingdom as the waters cover the sea. We're going to see how majestic that kingdom is. And it's just going to be eternally becoming more radiant and more majestic. And God wants you to enter that place. He wants you. He's inviting you to enter it now by faith. You can enter the kingdom of God now. And then later, when the time comes, you will enter it along with your brothers and sisters. So he's inviting you. Look at verse 6. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink water without cost from the spring of the water of life. So you have to ask, are you thirsty for this? Does this line up with what you want? Are you, are you thirsty? Do you get the image of, of thirst. Think about the thirstiest you've ever been in your life. Some, some hazy, hot, humid day and you're working outside and you like haven't had enough to drink and you're just parched. You're thirsty. Or you can imagine someone like crawling through a desert desperate to get to an oasis and then sees one and somehow gets to it and starts to drink because water is life to that person. Are you thirsty? Do you, do you say, I'm thirsty to be there. I'm thirsty to be in a perfect world like that. I am so thirsty to be done with sin. I am so thirsty to never sin again and to be around no one else that ever sins again either. I'm thirsty for that. I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I'm thirsting for God. I want to see God. That's what I want. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you. I'm thirsty for you, O God. And Jesus said in John 6, whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You're going to come to a place of perfect satisfaction. You're going to be so refreshed in Jesus in heaven. So are you thirsty for that? Are you thirsty for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you yearn to have God say to you, all of your sins are forgiven through faith in Christ? Are you thirsty for that? Are you thirsty to be reconciled to God and to be in a right relationship with God? Are you thirsty to be in the new heaven, new earth where there's no more death, mourning, crying, or pain? Then come and drink. It's, it's offered freely, without cost, as it says in Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat, without money and without price. Now, this gift is given to those who overcome. Look what he says in verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So there is a conquering you have to do to get there. You have to overcome something to get there. Now, first and foremost, hear this text. 1 John 5, verse 4, it says, Everyone who is born of God, born again, overcomes the world. And then he says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So faith in Jesus is the victory that overcomes the world. You have to overcome all that the world, the flesh, and the devil want to do to your soul just to believe in Jesus. Just to come to saving faith in Christ. But then having come to saving faith in Christ, you then have to fight the good fight of faith. You have to fight indwelling sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Heaven is given to those who fight that fight. And if you don't fight that fight, you're not a child of God. That's what Romans 8, 13 and 14 says. It says, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 
So you are led by the Spirit into a battle with sin, with the world, the flesh, and the devil. That is the road that leads to heaven. He who overcomes will inherit all this. We are more than conquerors. And if you are born again, you will overcome. Someday you will see Satan dead at your feet. You'll put, you'll put your foot on his neck. You will, you will see the world system destroyed. And your own lusts and sin nature will be purified out of you. And you will be an heir. But then he gives a terrifying warning of those who will be excluded in verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The cowardly, those who cared more what people thought than what God thinks. They're cowards. They knew. They knew what to do, but they didn't want to do it. The cost was too high. And the unbelieving, those who just didn't believe in Jesus. Maybe they heard the gospel, or maybe they didn't. They heard the gospel and they wouldn't believe. They didn't combine it with faith, as the author of Hebrews says. And the vile, they are morally repugnant, morally ugly. Because in that world, there will be no blemish, no stain, nothing but purity and holiness. In Christ, we are transformed from being vile to being radiantly beautiful. But those that have not received that transformation are vile, it says. And he lists other sins that are so well known to us. Murderers will be outside the city. The sexually immoral. We are such a sexually free, sexually permissive age. God's never changed his standard, ever. The magic arts, the sorcerers, pharmacos, those who use drugs and witchcraft, idolaters, anyone who places ultimate value on created things rather than the creator, that's an idolater. And all liars. Do you know there's a psalm in which psalmist says, all men are liars, all people are liars, all of us. So when you see that word liars on that list of those that goes to the lake of fire, then you realize you were redeemed by grace. You deserve to be condemned too. We're all the same. But we're redeemed from lying and from all these other sins by the blood of Christ. And the end of it is the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death as we described. It's a place of active conscious torment. Not just merely the absence of God, the presence of sorrow and torment fiery lake of burning sulfur now applications i've given throughout the sermon top priority i speak to any of you who are outside of christ right now come to faith in christ that's what this invitation is all about believe in jesus trust in him god sent jesus his only begotten son into the world to be a human fully god fully man died on the cross in our place as an atoning sacrifice. Put your trust in him, not in your own works. Trust in Jesus and you'll be forgiven of all your sins. Now, if you're already a Christian, then I would suggest meditate on heaven more than you do. Fill your soul with meditations of the world to come. Read Revelation 21 and 22. Read it, feed on it. And then let let it flow out into good works that God has prepared in advance for you to walk in. Say, Lord, how do you want me to serve you today? Share the gospel with someone this week. Find someone, find someone who is lost and share the gospel. Find some place of sorrow or misery and say, you know, we were talking about sadness and sorrow on Sunday and we're coming to a place where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Do you want to hear about that place? Share the gospel with someone this week. Close with me in prayer. 
Father, we thank you for the beauty of the world to which we're going. We know we don't deserve it. We know we can scarcely imagine it. But I pray, O oh Lord, that you would fill our minds and our hearts with the truth. Help us to understand, Lord, that beautiful world. Help us to yearn for it and to be hungry and thirsty for it and to desire it with all of our hearts. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Enable us, O oh Lord, to glorify you by putting sin to death and by witnessing, by sharing the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.